Hi, this is Dr. Elena Konis, and today we'll be mapping DDT on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Elena Konis. Elena Konis is a writer and historian of medicine, public health, and the environment. She teaches at the Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism and the Media Studies Program and directs the graduate program in public journalism. Her current research focuses on scientific controversies, science denial, and the public understanding of science, and has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Institutes of Health, National Library of Medicine, and the Science History Institute. Her first book, Vaccine Nation, America's Changing Relationship with Immunization, received the Arthur J. Visseltier Award from the American Public Health Association and was named a Choice Outstanding Academic Title and a Science Pick of the Week by the journal Nature. In her newest book, How to Sell a Poison, The Rise, Fall, and Toxic Return of DDT, she follows a trail of corporate manipulation and manufactured doubt in science geared to keep profits flowing. Hello, Elena. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm just so taken by your work and the ways in which you weave together history and science and social commentary. And in your most recent book, How to Sell a Poison, you explore the chemical DDT. And I was reading some reviews of the book, and Kirkus Review referred to the book as an insightful, timely work about the endless game of catch-up we play when we pollute first and regulate later. That might be your statement. I'm not sure, but they had it in <laughs> yeah, their review. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So important. It's such a potent statement when we look at toxic impacts from a health and clinical lens. So with all that said, Elena, I'm wondering if you can start us out by explaining what DDT is and why it was originally used. Absolutely. So DDT, that's three letters that stand for a long chemical name that some of your audience may have heard of a long time ago when it was widely used. It was introduced during the Second World War as a compound that killed insects. Today, we call it a pesticide. That wasn't a commonly used term at the time, but that's eventually what it came to be known as, a pesticide. In the Second World War, it was extremely popular because it protected our troops from insects that spread diseases in the places where they were facing combat, places like the South Pacific and the Mediterranean, diseases like malaria, dengue, typhus, and others. 
at home during the war, it also found widespread use as an insect killer in agriculture. And then after the war, at home and just about everywhere that you can think of, it became kind of part of this gradually building desire to make life cleaner and more sanitary. And so DDT became a way to protect people from disease, crops from pests, and also the home from everything from, you know, potentially harmful things like flies that were thought of spreading diarrheal diseases to things that were at the time, you know, and still are annoying, ants in the sugar, moths in your clothes and your carpet, bed bugs in the bed, and DDT took off. We were producing more and more and more throughout the 1940s. It became one of the most popular and widely used chemicals of the post-war era. It's kind of fascinating to think about risk-reward, right? I'm always thinking about this in relation to health. And clearly there was a reward, but that didn't come without a risk. When and how did we begin to recognize that risk? That is such a good question. And that's part of why DDT's story is so fascinating because we perceived the balance between risk and reward differently depending on other things that were going on at the time. And this is probably familiar to people today if you put it in the context of thinking about COVID-19. I'll come back to that. But to think about DDT for a moment, from the very first moment that we began studying it and using it, there were scientists who looked at it a bit, its ability to kill bugs and said, this is absolutely, you know, extraordinarily beneficial and we don't see too many toxic downsides, certainly nothing to worry about. Then there were, you know, the pharmacologists and scientists who were looking specifically at how this compound might adversely affect either the environment or humans. And from the beginning, they noticed, well, it is really toxic, not just to the bugs we want to kill but beneficial bugs, pollinators, butterflies. It's also toxic to small wildlife, including aquatic species and birds. And not only that, they noticed that it was building up in the fatty tissue of initially lab animals. And then after a few years, they noticed it was building up in the fat of humans. And there were scientists who said, this is really concerning. We need to slow down and understand the downstream meaning of this accumulation. And then others who said, you know what, there's just too much good. During the war, they said there's too many benefits to DDT. After the war, you know, this just became an extraordinarily profitable commercial juggernaut. And so (laughs) there were other kinds of rewards associated with the chemicals use, the rewards of, you know, more productive agriculture and cleaner and quote unquote, more sanitary homes. And all of these things brought different sectors profits in a way that really kind of secured Didi's place and made people for a while just unwilling to really look at those risks closely. And that's a key point that you really look at right there, just the capitalistic notion in not even really acknowledging the health impacts or the environmental impacts, that's where risk-reward has a different meaning depending on who's looking at it. Do I have that right? You absolutely do. You know, in the late 1940s and early 50s, there were people working, say, on farms or people who owned small farms that were adjacent to larger farms where DDT was being used. And a lot of these people were complaining of health effects and took their complaints to health officials And 
you know, they also took them to their employers if they were working somebody else's land. And the employers would say like, "Mm, you know, it's fine. Everybody says it's safe. Don't worry about it. Just use it. The health officials would then, you know, show up on site and say, you know, it is risky, but just use it as directed. (laughs) Like, you know, it seems like it might have some toxic effects, but, you know, as long as you use it according to the label, you know, you're going to be fine. The problem is nobody really knew how to label this in the beginning. The folks who were complaining were looking to health officials for, you know, advice and reassurance. The health officials would look at companies for information and the companies would say, yeah, it's toxic, needs to be used as directed. (laughs) And so then the health officials would tell the farmers, yeah, it needs to be used as directed. You know, so the small farmers actually, I've looked at several cases where they just stopped and dropped it and actually wanted others to stop using it too. But larger landowners who were hiring other people to work their land said, all right, just let them use it and hope that they, you know, aren't harmed by it. Or if they are, we'll hire somebody else because there's always going to be somebody to do these jobs. Right. And then, you know, when you look through my lens as a functional medicine nutritionist, we have to look at the individual response, right? So there's the toxic level based on what data. And then we're looking at people who may already have impaired detoxification or endocrine issues that are further off balanced by their exposure. So how do we even determine what is toxic when we're thinking at an individualized health level? Oh, that's such an interesting question. And I have to say, as a historian, here's how I think about it. (laughs) I look at how different scientists and health professionals over time understood what was toxic and what power they had to, you know, codify their definition of toxicity in our regulations. So for instance, we have a Centers for Disease Control. It's been around, again, going back to the same moment, the Second World War. And it didn't have a branch or any office dedicated to understanding the toxicity of pesticides after the war. And they kind of quickly created one. And there is a tension between how the scientists in charge of this CDC office and how scientists in other agencies like the FDA or the USDA thought about toxicity. Some of them said, you know, we just need to like see how large a dose is lethal and that's it and just stay below that dose. (laughs) And others said, no, we need to look at its effects on all of the organ systems in different types of individuals. We need to like use animal studies, but extrapolate from them in a way that, you know, indicates that we know that what happens in animals may not be what happens in humans and what's lethal or harmful to animals, you know, may or may not tell us what's down the road for humans. So the upshot of what I'm saying is that the definition of toxicity was political in some respects. Yeah, it's so amazing to look at it from these different lenses. And when we think about DDT and the research you did, what were the effects that we were seeing on all of the organ systems? I'm assuming there were hormone issues, but also given that it had an impact on the fatty tissue, were we seeing issues with the brain? That's really interesting. So two of the effects on health that have been really extensively studied are its carcinogenicity, and this is related to something else, which is its ability to act like or mimic human hormones and then cause a variety of effects related to that, what's known as endocrine disruption, which I'm sure your audience is really familiar with. And 
looking at DDT, which is a chemical that was first created in the 1870s, but then really used widely in the 1940s through the 1970s, we had indications that it was both carcinogenic and that it affected hormones really early on. And yet we didn't have enough other evidence and enough tools to really make sense of both of those potential effects for decades. And so eventually, you know, today it's classified by the World Health Organization as probably carcinogenic to humans. And at this point in time, we've looked at DDT's relationship to so many different types of cancer, from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to testicular cancer to breast cancer, to name just a few. And it has different relationships to all of those cancers. But, you know, depending on which scientists you talk to, some will say, absolutely, it's linked to that form of cancer. And others will say, actually, the evidence is not that strong. We need more evidence. Then there are the hormonal effects, which are linked to some of those cancers, which, again, we had early signs of. Scientists had noticed that birds that were exposed to DDT were affected by it in ways that changed their reproductive organs. And they said, well, this is unusual. (laughs) It seems like it is operating on the hormones. And in that respect, it looked like another chemical that they were familiar with, DES, which is known as a really strong endocrine disruptor. But again, it took decades for us to really understand exactly which hormones DDT was mimicking or, you know, acting like or blocking in the body and then what the health consequences of those were. Its accumulation in fat meant that it was going to have these effects for a long time <laughs> and that the chemical, even though you were exposed to it, you know, only briefly in your youth, it was going to stay in your body for decades too. And that was something that it also took us a long time to figure out. And all this relates back to your intro, pollute now, regulate later, but also pollute now, understand later. You know, we were studying this as we were using it and DDT in our country has been banned since 1972 but there are still scientists, epidemiologists, and others who are working hard to understand its remaining and intergenerational effects. That's such an important point, just with the epigenetic impact of the exposure and how we pass it on generationally and keep that in our systems because it's in the fatty tissue and it's become an endocrine disruptor. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the word that you used, epigenetics, that's not even a term that we had until the last couple of decades. And so we didn't even have that tool for understanding a toxic exposure until, again, actually decades after this one was banned. And DDT is one of thousands of chemicals that were synthesized in the post-war era and that really led us as humans, as a species, into a new relationship with chemical exposures. And we're still really trying to decipher the full set of implications of these exposures and coming up with new ways of understanding those relationships all the time. You know, I'm just sort of struck in a kind of, I have chills way about the impact that this has, again, generationally, but even in our lived lives on hormones and hormone expression and what a juggernaut that is clinically 
to address and how there are these triggers that have happened throughout history. And if we look at the sequence of your book, you talk about it being a wonder chemical, then you go into the ban in the 1970s, but then there's a drive to bring it back. Do I have that right? Absolutely, yeah. And this is one of the things that's so fascinating about DDT's story. On the one hand, here we've been talking for the last 10, 15 minutes about a chemical that's been banned since the 1970s, but, you know, is still in our environment. It's still in lots of people's bodies and is still having these intergenerational effects on health. As an aside, we haven't even talked about neurological effects, but the other part of the story is that there was this push in the early current millennium, the early 21st century, to bring DDT back. And this, on the one hand, seemed to come out of nowhere. There were both scientists who were saying, and medical and health professionals who were saying, we need this chemical back because it's our best tool against malaria, especially in places that are dealing not just with malaria, but with absolutely devastating poverty, that there's no tool greater than DDT for controlling malaria in these parts of the world. But then that argument got picked up by what turned out to be a group of conservatives and conservative think tanks funded by the likes of the tobacco industry (laughs) who saw in DDT's story, its history, a morality tale that they believed would help undermine public trust in government regulation generally. So to explain what I'm saying a little bit more clearly, the idea that they put forward was DDT's ban in countries like the U.S. put it out of reach of countries like those in sub-Saharan Africa. And because of that, in the early 2000s, they were saying, you know, millions of small children and adults were infected with and then dying of malaria because they couldn't get DDT because the West had selfishly banned it. And that the environmentalists and public health experts who had banned DDT didn't have you know, the global South's interests in mind. And so they shouldn't be trusted because they were wrong. Part of their argument was DDT was safe. It had never been fully convincingly linked to cancer, and therefore it shouldn't have been banned. And that, you know, essentially there was blood on the hands of environmentalists and health advocates because of the ban. Now, why would tobacco want to popularize this message? I mean, simply put, they were facing increasing regulation, both at the domestic level and the global level. And so they thought if they could undermine public support for regulation of health generally, then you know they'd be protecting their products. And so DDT was just this handy morality tale to say like, hey, don't let the West regulate health. They do it in selfish and not evidence-based ways. This was completely disingenuous, <laughs> but it worked in part because there were medical and health experts who were saying, you know, there might still be a place for DDT and malaria control. And in fact, there could have been. DDT was never the panacea that we thought it was in the 40s and 50s. It has, in places, had an important ongoing role in malaria control, but it isn't a silver bullet and it does still carry risks. 
Yeah. What a spin there too. Before I let you go, Elena, I want to come back to two things. So the neurological effects, because I know that will be of interest to our audience, especially, you know, given my question about the fatty tissue. So can you talk into what you were referring to there with the neurological effects? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let me put this very simply again, because I'm not a clinician, I'm a historian, but it should, should come as no surprise that a chemical that was widely used because it was a neuro toxin was found decades later to cause neurological changes and result in delays in children and children who were exposed when very young. So like slightly reduced cognitive ability and for instance, some behavioral changes and reduced capacity to learn at the same pace as their unexposed peers, things like that. And It was really epidemiological studies in the 90s and 2000s that really started to show those connections. Again, these were studies that were done in places where DDT was still being used, and they were showing something that we should have known. (laughs) Pesticides are designed (laughs) to target the nervous system. And so many of the Second World War pesticides were, DDT was not one of them, but many of them were actually used as nerve gases, as chemical weapons during the war. So these were meant to cause harm, and we've used them as if they're completely safe. Hmm. Yeah. The other thing I was going to ask you about, you mentioned earlier on or referenced COVID-19. So I'm going to package that question or that reference with just what you wish we did know as clinicians after doing the wealth of research that you did into DDT. We haven't really talked very much about this, but in the book that I wrote about this chemical, I really wanted to show who trusts science and who struggles to trust science and why. And I think today we have a kind of knee-jerk way of blaming people who don't trust science and labeling that trust a personal failure or the result of ignorance instead of trying to understand where that distrust comes from and also instead of trying to understand Who's trying to manipulate the public's views on science? I mean, I think in the current pandemic, there's been a lot said about those who are willing to get vaccinated and those who aren't. And at different stages of the pandemic, those who are willing to wear masks and those who aren't and things like that. And a lot of this has to do with politics and political views, which are related to this larger question of who trusts science and who doesn't. But my main takeaway in the book, which I hope some of your your listeners will find interesting, is that there are people who literally for generations have found good reason to wonder about what our officials and our scientists are saying because they haven't always been fully honest they haven't always been able to because we, they haven't always had the information they needed to tell the public exactly what the public wants to know. Mm, that's such a good point. We need that healthy skepticism. We need to look at things from all angles. And this is also true of health and medical providers listening to what our clients and patients are telling us because there's truth 
in everything. I always like to say true, but partial, right? There's a true, but partial element. That's such a great point, Elena. Thank you for the work you do. I'm a new fan and I'm sure we have some more new fans listening as well. So thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.